As the power levels rise in our modern crop of performance engines, at some point the factory internal components are going to cry enough. And this is where aftermarket components such as crankshafts, connecting rods and pistons come in. And we're here with Jim from Nitto Performance Engineering to find out a little bit more about what goes into developing aftermarket engine components. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. You're no stranger to the performance industry and uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, you're the original owner of Croydon Racing Developments and yep. particularly over your time at Croydon Racing Developments you saw uh, the development of the Japanese import market of cars and in particular you seem to have an affinity to the Nissan brand. And Where did you sort of start developing the idea? idea for Nitto Performance Engineering? Um, uh, the idea came in around uh, 1998. Um, we'd been, obviously I've been in the industry since the late 80s and um, uh, had the Croydon Race Developments for nearly 30 odd years. And um, so I saw a need myself to expand what we were already doing. Uh, as you said, we we're heavily involved in the motorsport industry, in the Jap import scene back then. Uh, I affectionately call it rice burners in the 80s. Um, so we were at the forefront of that. Uh, we were one of the first shops in New South Wales or in Sydney to um, to start working on the, the Japanese import cars. And um, so uh, to be able to sort of expand from what we were already doing, you know, we were, we were doing so much with a lot of the Japanese cars, you know, be it your little Suzuki's back in the 80s, uh, WRXs, Evos, and GDRs, which, as you just mentioned, is our uh, affectionate little babies. And um, so we felt the need to sort of go that next level and, and start expanding our um, our range and also uh, being able to offer the public something that wasn't currently available at that time. Now, let's dive in. I know you're definitely not limited to the Nissan market, but let's just focus on the Nissan. We've got this beautiful R34 behind us. And the RB26, despite the fact that it is well-loved and well-proven to make huge amounts of power, let's be honest, it is an engine that is not without its uh, faults that need to be addressed in the aftermarket. So there's the block itself, but what we really want to talk about is the rotating assembly, which is where Nitto comes in. And uh, one of the factors is 26 litres uh, is pretty limited, particularly when you're competing against a 3-litre 2JZ. So you've developed stroker kits as well. Can you talk us through the process of, of developing these stroker kits? Yeah, sure. So um, again, basically working on the uh, skylines for from the mid-90s, uh, you know, we found the need to sort of ex- extend and expand the, the range and, and make more horsepower and make it reliable. So, you know, we were back in the days where uh, we had an all-wheel drive dyno and uh, seeing 200 kilos the wheels out of one of our first uh, R32s was like, whoa, you know, it was, it was pay dirt, you know, it was back, wow. And then it sort of went to 600 kilowatts at the wheels. And then we had milestones along the way and we found that we had to make components that would actually live. Uh, we found the limits, you know, back in those days as well. But we were lucky enough to be at the forefront of what was going on and um, and saw limitations and uh, in, in a... In a one sense, it, 
what we would do is be able to see, okay, we're coming up against a brick wall here. What can we do to make it go the next step without having to destroy things? Um, so, again, that, that's when the, the need came in uh, to go bigger capacity, um, more RPM, makes more horsepower, you know, and the thing goes on. So, yeah, we ended up with a 2.7 kit, which was the popular kit for the day. I uh, then developed a uh, 2.8 kit, which has now been proven to be the the uh, go-to 2.8 if you're running an RB26 block. And eventually the 30s came along. Uh, there was a time where, and I, and I clearly remember this back in the late 90s, when uh, the go was RB30s don't rev, they destroy themselves, they've got harmonic issues and yada, yada, yada from other shops. And it's like, okay, but... It's got a good stroke. It's got a good rod ratio. That crank looks like crap. Okay, let's see if we can do something with it. So it'd be fair to say that we instigated that change in the RB30, which then allowed those motors to rev uh, and be reliable and reduce harmonics, which used to crack the original RB30 blocks, and then develop uh, back into the, develop further and go into the RD blocks and so on and so on. And then you've got cars like this, which are now happily revving at 10,000 RPM and Rob Margins R32 are running our reciprocating components in there at the moment. And that's happy to rev to 11,500. It's a hell of a lot of RPM for sure, to, particularly to remain reliable. But of course, that's what you, you need if you want to beat the best in the yeah. world. Now, in terms of actually developing a crankshaft for an engine like this, sort of, what is your process? Do you uh, use uh, sort of CAD CAM to, to design the crankshaft and go through uh, finite element stress analysis, or is it literally a case of developing the crankshaft, no, putting it in an engine and, and testing it? Initially, you'd run through a process where you would do your testing and uh, computer simulation, but back in the 90s, we didn't have access to that. So we'd have to come up with something which we believe was going to be good. Um, we'd have to then run it through a process, whether it's, for example, our crankshafts when we manufacture them now, uh, go through a process when, when they're actually finished, we get them all spun up and balanced at 9,000 RPM. So we know nowadays that they're perfectly balanced and so, you know they do what they've got to do with our reciprocating mass. But back in the early days, we didn't have the CAD CAM stuff and whatever else. We'd have to go by experience. And then you learn things along the way and um, things that we'd done in the earlier days with other engines, we put that along with this thing and then and developed. And yeah, there's trial and errors and you know, some things are going to work and some things don't work. You know, We found some things that I was really happy with and there were some things where I've gone, no, nah, I don't like that. That's going to create a problem back to the drawing board, redo it and, and whatever else. So, um, well, one, of, one of the things we see with uh, production crankshafts and either some of the aftermarket crankshafts is that while when we're fitting the crankshaft to the engine block, it obviously is what appears to be a completely rigid item, but mm. what that crankshaft's actually looking like inside the engine at 10, 11,000 RPM mm -hmm. with 80 or 90 PSI of boost uh, into yeah. the engine, it's becoming much more flexible yeah. and that can cause a problem, particularly with bearing life. So. Yep. Exactly. What are you doing in the design of the crankshaft to try and improve the rigidity? Yep, so uh, what you basically said there is something that we found once we start going over 2,000 horsepower with our uh, RB30 
cranks, RB30 cranks or 3.2s, uh, running the 4340. Cranks were, you know, they did what they had to do, but then once you start running over 2,000 horsepower at the wheels, you start to see a bit of uneven bearing wear. You can see where in the centre main it started to get a bit of a lick up the, the, the centre bearing, and then you go, okay, well, is that a bit of block flex? Yeah, but, you know, that could, it's also a bit of crank flex because you see it in the rest of the bearings. And then... Um, once we sort of went, okay, well, now we're going to go for another material because we know that there's something better out there, and we were able to come up with a 40, uh, EN40B um, and use a similar design. Um, weight's about the same, but um, now we have a situation where we're making 25, 2600 horsepower at the engine, and that same crankshaft, that EN40B crank, the bearings are absolutely perfect after doing maybe 15... 2,000 plus horsepower runs on a dyno, we pull it apart. Yep, it's all good. Okay, to the track. So, so that's just the difference between the 4340 that's and the, the EM40B yeah. material. Yeah, that, 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 that's mainly the material. Um, I am also, I have developed another crankshaft, which is, uh, we've just shown snippets of what's, what's up and coming through our social media. Um, so, again, being at the forefront of the RB scene, um, I've been able to one, I tune because I tune, tune Jun. I've uh, been able to see how aggressive we can get away with the tune before we start to sort of hurt the Achilles heel at the moment, which is the uh, big end bearings. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. All right, so let's talk about that big end bearing because, as you've mentioned there, that can be a limiting factor with a lot of engines, the, the size of the bearing and basically how much load that bearing can support and particularly have problems if the maybe the tune's a little bit off and run into a small amount of detonation, then uh, that can push the bearing through the oil film and basically quickly destroy the bearing. So yeah. what are your options? there what can you do particularly when you're building a custom crankshaft so uh, so what we've actually done is we've come up with a bearing which which is available off the shelf um, which is now a 20.5 millimeter wide big end bearing and the stock bearing uh, width is 17 yeah it's a 17 millimeters so we've got an increase of about 20 percent uh, we've done that by not reducing the diameter of the crankshaft so we've been able to uh, keep the same what we call crossover between the main and the big end bearing and that, that crossover there uh, but hard to show without a, a bit of a graphic but that that helps with the rigidity because you've actually got material crossover between the main journal and the big end journal yeah no, exactly right so uh, we've been able to maintain that and by then um, adding more material around the webbing uh, because we've taken a little bit off the width of the, the crankshaft uh, where the big end is uh, we've come up with a bearing which we now push a lot more than what we'd been able to push a 17 mil bearing so yeah and 20 percent improvement or increase in width is, is massive so you can sort of apply that to the the power level then yeah that's going to make a, a massive difference uh, okay so we've talked about the crankshaft there another thing of the rb in particular and we see this with a lot of engines the uh sintered material that they use to make the oil pumps is, is a known weak point yeah. basically rev it past about eight thousand rpm and the thing's going to fall to pieces yeah. and uh, you're talking about revving the 10 11,000 rpm uh what are you doing with aftermarket oil pumps Pumps for the RB. Yeah, well, we've manufactured oil pump uh, quite some time back, and um, it's worked quite effectively for a number of years. So we've got a lot of engines that are we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pumps, which I personally build myself. So everything is actually hand built and hand matched up. Um, so, and then what we've done is uh, recently because we've got a we're getting a request now from more guys that want to run like this car just ran on eight four. 
uh, it's running our new sign drive oil pump, which is basically essentially our oil pump with a new inner gear with a different drive. Uh, so to, to get the, the different type of drive, again, it's a bit hard to explain. Um, so what we've been able to do is come up with a drive which, is, which runs successfully and reliably on an, on an engine which is running low weights now, uh, so it's a wet sump car. And um, we've been able to then make our own drive, which then goes over the, uh, the existing crankshaft, so you machine the crankshaft down to put our drive on it, and uh, along with a wider gear that we've got, plus the ribbing on the side of the, um, the gear itself, we've been able to, to extend the drive of the gear a substantial amount, whereas we're distributing the massive two-step loading, because that's where these things are going to break, they're going to break, uh, the loading across the whole gear, so it's a lot more even, a lot more drive. We've actually got 12 drive surfaces instead of the traditional two, uh, and we're allowing for the RB30s, especially where they, they get a little bit of movement in the crankshaft or whatever else, to, to have a bit of that play still in between the gear and the drive itself. So you don't actually want it too rigid no, to the crank? No, no, definitely not. Um, that doesn't, doesn't go well with pumps. Uh, it will tend to destroy a pump in no time. So again, for those who may be a little bit familiar with the, the RB26, the, the factory drive you kind of mentioned here is, is just like two flats that drives the pump and obviously the early crankshafts were problematic because that drive was too short, not fully engaging in, in, the, in the oil pump drive as well. So numerous problems in there, but this sign drive, basically better supportive, what I'm understanding is, is, is better support of that driven oil pump gear and that's going to make it more reliable, particularly for the likes of two-step. Yeah, a lot more reliable. So whereas with a two-flat, so essentially you had a, a, a round circumference and you had one flat on one side and right opposite there's another flat. So then you had two sharp points which dig into the gear, essentially dig into the gear to drive it. Now what we found in our own manual testing side made up a jig which I can actually exert you know, six, seven hundred foot-pounds of torque on a, on a stocky type gear. I could get that gear eventually to go slightly out of round, Right. And when it slightly goes out of round, even if it's a couple of hours, you know at some stage or somewhere down the track, that might have an issue if it's consistently banged on a 1,000, 1,200 horsepower. This thing's making way over that, but say thirteen or 1,400 horsepower engine. Um, and especially when it's two-stepping, you know, or launch controlling, that sort of stuff. That real harsh cutting. Real harsh, bang, bang, backwards, forwards. So then... By having that knowledge of these things since the 90s and knowing where they would fail if they, if they did fail, uh, again, being proactive, we've gone, okay, we need to come up with something because we feel this is going to be the next thing that people are going to want. So let's give them something before they want it, if so to speak. So it's already on the market, which means it's going to be somebody can pick it up any time, now office, and um, before they encounter an issue, We've got a solution for them. It's also nice for the guys who are out there who don't really want to go to the expense and complexity of adding a dry sump system oh, into their builds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've, um, uh, and to test oil pressure, my oil pumps have actually, we deliberately blocked off the oil pressure valve years ago to see how much oil pressure we could actually get out of our pumps. We're running close to 250 PSI. So it was 230 to 250 PSI in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, just to see how far we could go. Like this particular engine here runs way over 100 psi pressure. You need that for the bearings to live and whatever else. But our pump's capable of doing it because it's got the, the eight, sorry, the 12 drives, which means it can exert an even amount of force over those eight drives. So it's not going to get loaded to be egg shaped, so to speak. 
All right, again, I just want to mention that we have been focusing pretty solely on the RB, but of course, Nitto make products for a range of other engines. And if our viewers want to find out a little bit more, where can they go to? Oh, you can go to our website. It's um, uh, www.nitto.com.au. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, there's information there. Social media, if they just uh, go on, um, we've got uh, Facebook and we've got Instagram. And uh, my young guy is uh, a genius with that social media stuff because he's 21 and, I, and I'm over 50. So he does all my social media. So there's more on that every day. So um, you're more than welcome to go on there and have a look. Uh, so it's uh, Nitto Performance Engineering uh, is our Facebook. And Nitto Performance Engineering, I think it's at at Nitto Performance Engineering. We'll, we'll tag you. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> for our uh, Instagram. So, uh, yeah, cool. Perfect. Thanks a lot for the uh, chat, excellent. Jim. Thank you very much. Cheers. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.